so, but that's always what Jesus is like. Like you run in, like everybody else is running out and you run in. Um, but really there's no place to run away to, right? There's re no real place to escape. Um, so it's when you follow Jesus running in that you actually get to experience some of the foretaste of the feast to come. Like there is a healing power to running in. Welcome to Resurrection Covenant Church in this next episode in our series, Letters to the Church, where we make space in the life of our community to hear from people across that vast communion of saints and we can sit at their feet and learn from their stories. This morning, we're super excited to welcome Alexia Salvatierra, Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvatierra. She's a pastor and organizer ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. For over 11 years, she was the executive director of Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice in Los Angeles, and now is the assistant professor of Integral Mission and Global Transformation at Fuller out in California. And she also, in her spare time, <laughs> as executive director at Matthew 25 in Southern California, which I just learned about, and I'll, I'm, I'll let you say more about that, Alexia. Um, it's a gathering of immigrant and non-immigrant communities. I am particularly excited to have you with us because we first got connected several years ago um, here in Chicago when you helped us offer a few trainings on faith-rooted organizing. And it's just really so great to be reconnected to you in this way and in this time. So thanks so much for your willingness to be with us and to share with our people and our community in this way. Glad to be with you, Aaron. Uh, one little correction, I'm not executive director. I'm madrina, which is very different, um, means godmother in Spanish. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's, a different, so it's a different structure, right? Yeah, yeah no, 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 right. language matters uh, and it's really important. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so we always open up our um, time together with people by asking them kind of a get to know you question. And we've altered this a little bit over our time together, but yeah. our, uh, our opening question is, um, what shapes and informs how you show up in the world? Right, so I actually have, I've been reflecting quite a bit on that. I have three different answers, so I'll move through them relatively quickly. Uh, so I accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior when I was 16. So that's almost 50 years now. Um, and so, you know, that's obvious, but I still wanted to share it because mm -hmm. it is what shapes and forms me, um, both in terms of the depth of gratitude, the constant gratitude that I have for his presence in my life for his lordship and his saving grace. And, and then also the way that, um, you know, we have that deep, deep impulse from inside that the, is the Holy Spirit, right? To be like him, to have the aroma of Christ surround us as we walk through the world, right? To be as Luther would say, a little Christ. So, mm -hmm. you know, that forms and shapes me. I'm not gonna deny that it's core. Um, and then, and then the particular way that I live that out is connected to sort of my core spiritual gift, which is not on the list. It's the spiritual gift of justice, <laughs> not on the list. But the list is not closed, you know? Music is not on the list, right? Um, but, you know, I, I understand spiritual gifts as profound compulsions. So Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel because he was an evangelist, right? So everybody is called to witness but not everybody's an evangelist. Uh, spiritual gift is a, a deep inner, you know, compulsion in the belly 
that makes you want to, you know, I, I can't be, a, I feel the injustice happening anywhere in the world as if it's happening to me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm compelled to, to develop that gift. Um, and my understanding is that that gift is, for, is not for me to be super justice person, but for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. That means that I eat it, breathe it, sleep it, drink it, so that I can help inspire and guide people to contribute their granito de arena, their grain of sand, you know, to live justice in their lives as part of their calling um, in whatever way that makes sense for them. And then the third thing I would say is that I wouldn't be real if I didn't say that I'm formed by my community. So mm -hmm. I mentioned that, you know, my title is Madrina, which means godmother. Well, that, that means a lot to me. I didn't create that title uh, for myself. That was given to me by some of the young people that I work with, um, and it spread really quickly. And, um, but that forms me because they need me to be their godmother. And so I am, uh, it calls it out of me. So I would say that that's, I would say that's true for all of us, but maybe particularly for those of us in the Hispanic community that we are formed by each other. Um, when you were talking about justice and that being a spiritual gift, I was thinking how important imagination is to the work of justice, mm. uh, especially in the Christian life that somehow you have to imagine there's another way to live uh, mm. and then live in light of that. So I'm wondering what are the practices of the church um, that help shape that imagination toward justice for you? Um, well, one of the most important ones that we can't do right now is the sacrament. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I'm, I'm Luther Costal. <laughs> That's how I talk about it. <laughs> you know, I'm very Pentecostal in my spirituality. And another practice that's incredibly meaningful to me is that Holy Spirit prayer where, you know, some people speak in tongues and some people don't, but you're just caught up in praise, just, you know, filled with praise and you're all filled with praise together. And, you know, that is very hard to do on Zoom. Uh, although a little possible, um, uh, but the sacrament is also, I'm Luther Costal, the sacrament is also <laughs> incredibly important to me as that kind of practice that forms you and reforms you and we can't really do it now, you know? So, um, and I have very mixed feelings about that. But um, I think that I spend, you know, in this time where we're connected and separated, I'm an older person and I have lung issues, so, I'm relatively isolated, even though I work with people constantly on Zoom. I'm pretty careful and they're careful of me. So I, you know, a lot of my practices right now have to be solitary practices. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say that there are two different aspects of it that are really important for me. And one is that I think we have to look for what triggers our experience of Christ. Like I'm not, you know, I used to be a little ashamed that I didn't just walk around all the time in this sacred space, <laughs> but I don't. Um, <laughs> so I, I need triggers and I've, I'm at this age, I sort of know what triggers me. I know that Frederick Beekner's sermons trigger me. I know some mm. of what Anne Lamott writes triggers me. I know the gospel in Solentanami triggers me. So you're talking, those trigger the imagination. Um, but also yoga triggers me. You know, mm. you can do yoga as a, as a, practice with lots of different uh, content. Spiritually, I do yoga as a Christian. I find that the movements help me pray. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, I also ride the bicycle as a Christian. <laughs> the bicycle is a very contemplative experience for me. I do it all the time. So, you know, I use it as a space to pray. So I think, you know, you look for what triggers you. And then you have to let go into it, right? You have to not worry about looking silly or being silly by letting go. I mean, Pentecostal prayer is all about letting go. It's about going into this experience where you just um, enter all the way and let, let the spirit move you. I know that was a big part of trying to start yoga for me was getting over that. Yeah. Does this look silly in front of other people? And it is something freeing about that moment when you get past yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm debating about um, questions here, but so many of our people, and when you and I first got connected around faith-rooted organizing, yeah. I've been saying back in the day quite a bit, it feels like, uh, <laughs> Um, but several years ago. And so I, I know you, you are still very much involved in that in a different way now. Mm -hmm. um, but I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how you think about faith-rooted organizing mm -hmm. and um, how you got involved in that. Because I know that your, your story traverses um, lots of communities over the years and all of those have impacted your understanding of how the church and how faithful people should be engaged in the world. Mm -hmm. way. And so I wonder if you could say a little bit about that in relationship to faith-rooted organizing. Sure, and I am still very involved. Um, it's the model that we use in Matthew 25, Mateo 25, and it's also um, what I, I teach it at Fuller through a, a larger course called Urban Transformation. Mm. So, but organizing is basically bringing people together to create systemic change, the kind of change that you can't create as an individual. And it's always an act of faith to believe that you can create systemic change. For some people, it's an act of faith in human power. I don't have so much faith in human power, honestly. <laughs> um, I think that God always has to have a hand in things for them to work, especially when they're highly improbable, like being able to create systemic change. Um, but I have seen foretastes of the feast to come uh, in that area, just like I, you know, I've seen wins that are really significant for changing people's lives when people come together to create systemic change. What, um, and faith-based organizing recognizes that people who come together around their faith regularly are a natural base for bringing people together to involve them in systemic change. But faith-based organizing doesn't say anything about the assumptions underneath bringing people together. So uh, uh, some faith-based organizing has very secular assumptions about human motivation, about power. Um, Faith-rooted organizing really says that um, we have to go deep into the roots of our faith and our assumptions that underlie our organizing, if we're doing it as Christians, need to be formed by our faith. So just for example, self-interest is a human motivation. It's not the only human motivation. Mm -hmm. And to stretch every motivation to call it self-interest as if that's the most important thing about it is not a faithful assumption about how people are motivated. Um, we do what we call serpent dove organizing, which is to uh, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. To be wise as serpents is to recognize self-interest, is to recognize mm -hmm. the carnal and sinful aspects of human beings. But to be innocent as doves is to recognize that the Holy Spirit is always moving through the world. And... Um, and forming us and shaping us and calling us. And so to that, to be as innocent as doves is to believe that people can be moved by the spirit, that they can be moved by motivations that are sacrificial 
right? Um, anyone. So motivated by sacrificial love and moral courage. So, you know, how do we both take seriously people's self-interest in our organizing, but also uh, inspire the best in them and take that seriously as well. So that would be an example, just a little example. But, um, and of course, when you're organizing as part of a larger coalition, which you always are, because God's missio dei, God's um, mission in the world is bigger than the church, right? So mm -hmm. God is at work through the church, but also beyond the church. And so you're part of larger coalitions where you, but you want to be in the world and not of the world. So you're part of those larger coalitions, bringing some different gifts and some different contributions. So you need to be very conscious of what are the gifts and contributions that we bring as the church into these larger coalitions for justice. So that's in a nutshell. Um, Peter Heltzel and I wrote a book at, that was a particular snapshot of sort of the larger movement of faith-rooted organizing at that moment in history. Yeah. Um, and I still do train people, like I said, and I also teach. So um, I was just, and I was sharing a little earlier that I just finished teaching in Spanish this summer to 22 pastors from um, located throughout the Spanish-speaking world and some of them beyond that. We had a pastor who was a missionary in Africa from Brazil and the Portuguese-speaking world too, excuse me, Spanish-speaking mm -hmm. Portuguese-speaking, but also in the United States, also at the border. So um, Mexican side and the US side. So very, very rich class looking at what faith-rooted organizing looks like in all of these different contexts for these pastors. What do you, what um what about your faith and uh, for you in particular? But what about your faith compels you to be involved in these in these organizing efforts? And then how would you translate that to what do you think it is about the Christian tradition or faith mm. that should or could or um, compel? I'm hesitant to use the word should, but compel um, churches and the faithful community to get involved and engaged. So. You know, we're, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So every, every day, right? I mean, we all pray that all the time if we take that, that um, mandate seriously. And of course, that's Hebrew parallelism, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to do God's will in the world? knowing that we can't do it perfectly, you know, we can't, the kingdom doesn't come in total till he comes back, but, but we try to live into doing his will on, in the world. And I think that sometimes we limit the scope of that will. He's the Lord of the whole universe. So why would we try to do God's will in our personal lives and not in our public lives? Um, and I think to not recognize that we have a public life is the, the sin of an individualistic culture to be, faithful in our private lives and atheists in our public lives mm -hmm. or in our common life. So, you know, I think it's a question of stewardship. Like what stewardship means using all the gifts that God has given you for his glory, for his kingdom, to do his will. And in a democracy, we have the gift of being able to participate in the process of public decision-making. And public decision-making are those decisions that affect our, our common life. And those decisions are more or less important in your life, depending on how privileged you are. Like if you have enough money to go to a private school or to send your children to a private school, you don't really need to care about um, whether our public school system is broken. Doesn't affect you, right? 
um, you can choose your burdens. You can choose whether or not to enter into it. But there are some of us who are um, dependent on the systems where we don't have that kind of money. We're not born into that kind of money. And so, you know, if you're a little child in an inner city school, you know, your family may not have an option to send you anywhere else. And so then the question, then it then you can't, you're crushed under the burden of a system that doesn't work. So if we need to be, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So that means that, you know, we, we recognize that that is our common life, how our public school system works. And if in a democracy, we have the power, we have voice, we have influence that we can make the public school system work better, um, then why would we not be good stewards of that gift? Why would we not use that gift for God's glory and for his kingdom? Well, because we don't even recognize that it's a gift and that we have it and that, you know, the parable of the talents is that God is not happy when you don't use all your gifts, mm. right? So mm. I think that our, we, our, just our vision gets to be too private and too individualistic and God is the Lord of the whole universe. So you have to say mm. what, you know, and of course it's messy, but people don't realize that it's messy regardless. Individual lives are messy. That's such a good word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think especially now for people who are trying to engage faithfully in politics, mm -hmm. it can seem very easy to give in to cynicism. Uh, there's so many times when it seems like the best plans are not the ones that are being taken up at the local or national mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. um, and especially right now when we're in the midst of so many pandemics, whether it's Mm -hmm. uh, racial pandemics and uh, the movement uh, for black lives, uh, COVID, the fires raging uh, on the West Coast in large part due to climate politics. So how do you engage in politics, which you've been doing for decades over the long haul? How do you do that without um, giving in to cynicism or to state it positively? How do you find hope in the midst of that? So, you know, there's this great moment between Jesus and Peter, right? where Jesus has been saying this really horrible thing. I mean, we really need to recognize that eat my body and drink my blood is a pretty horrible thing to say, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, come on, you know, we understand it in a different context, but come on, don't I listen to it, right? Yeah. And, and so, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, so, you know, are you going to leave me? And it's a really good question. And Peter says, I love Peter, he's like, well, where would we go? <laughs> you know, part of the, the reality of the, the Christ way is that when everybody else is running away, Jesus is running in. You know, there's a story from 9-11 about this Christian young man, Henry Martinez, who saved 24 people, I think, before he died. You know, he ran out because he was athletic and young and he ran out and he was safe. But he then Jesus told him to run in and save people. He saved 24 people. So but that's always what Jesus is like. Like you run in like everybody else is running out and you run in. Um, but really, there's no place to run away to. Mm -hmm. Right. There's re no mm -hmm. real place to escape. Um, so it's when you follow Jesus running in that you actually get to experience some of the foretastes of the feast to come. Like there is a healing power to running in um, that doesn't exist if you try to run away. Mm. But you know, where are you gonna go? I mean, let's be real. Mm. Yeah. And you know, what's, what's interesting for me is I, all of that was sort of nonsensical to me because I grew up in, in you know, a low income urban area. 
I like I never understood that people thought there was somewhere they could go. And then I had the opportunity a few years ago to be in a small town in um, I think in Iowa. And it was really educational because I could see that life felt very manageable to people in that small town. Like, like there were only a few poor families and everybody was able to take care of them. And so, you know, they didn't understand systems because mm -hmm. realistically they were so far away. But you know, global warming affects everyone. I don't care if you're in a small town in Iowa, that even if you feel like you can get away, you actually can't. I would imagine that there are some also, so one of the things we talk a lot about like the exterior life of faith and you've talked about prayer and, um, and so I'm wondering if you could say a few words about some of the spiritual practices that help sustain you along the way. Well, you know, I'm not a, um, I'm not a contemplative, <laughs> you know, I, my daughter, um, for a while, was a Quaker and she um, invited me to come to her services and I was a little scared and I, I prayed up, you know, I practiced <laughs> <laughs> to be a silent for an hour in prayer. I was like, this is going to be so good for me. I went in there and you know, like, I was like in it. I was really in it. I was like, Oh, this is working. This is so good for me. I can feel the peace of the Lord. And I said, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I look up and it's 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, oh man. <laughs> And so, you know, I spent the next 45 minutes, you know, planning, planning things in my head, right? Yeah. Talking to the Lord about it. But, you know, I'm just not that, right? That's yeah. not the kind of animal I am. Um, I really uh, do arrow prayers all day, every day. I check in and check in and check in and, um, and lean in. I check in and lean in and that's sort of how I survive. Um, but like we were talking earlier, we know what our triggers are. We have to be disciplined about our triggers. You know what's going to for some people, Christian music is a trigger. And it is for me sometimes. You know, there's this interesting phenomena that I'm just going to be real about when you've been a Christian for a long time, which is you can desensitize to anything. Mm. You know, people mm. live in a beautiful place and they don't even see it. Like other people come to visit and they go, oh, wow, you live right near the beach. You just must be inspired all the time. Well, no, because you don't even see it because you desensitize. Like, you know, that scripture about remember your first love, you have to constantly resensitize. Mm -hmm. And, but that's not always simple. You'd have to know what your triggers are, right? Like Christian music for sometimes for me, I just don't even hear it. You know, I've been around mm -hmm. it for too many years. So I have to sort of go to folk music, right? I have to go to something mm -hmm. that is gonna be a phrase, there's gonna be a moment that's gonna remind me of the living God. Um, and sometimes it's not what's obvious. But all of us have to just sort of, it's a responsibility to understand at any particular time in life what your triggers are and to practice them. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Thank you, Miriam, for that. Um, and it's probably, it seems like a good place to um, kind of bring, begin to bring our conversation to a close. Um, one of the things that we always, we always end these conversations with and part of what initiated these um, conversations is getting people's thoughts and hopes or, or, or frustrations as the case may be for the church um, in light of all of that is unfolding in our culture and in our country in these days. 
And so if you were writing a letter to the church in that historic tradition of epistles to the church, um, what would you want to say and what are your hopes for the church today? So I, that was a really good question. Y'all sent it to me and I really liked it. I sat with it for a long time. Is um, I really think that what's been coming back to me a lot lately is blessed are the peacemakers. Mm. Is that I think that we live in a world without grace and without peace. Now I understand peace as shalom and shalom is peace that includes justice. It's not a peace that ignores the call to justice and the call to courage for justice, right? Um, it's a much richer concept of peace than just the absence of conflict. But we live in a world where peace is perhaps more desperately needed on every level than it's ever been in my life. Um, and so I think the church has to have the courage to, to be a bridge, um, to be a bridge that doesn't compromise the call for justice, but again, is innocent as a dove, recognizes the capacity of each person to be a little Christ and calls them into that, as well as calling people into community with each other, the kind of community that forms us like the coal is formed into diamonds. And I think our communities are as divided as the world right now. And that's mm -hmm. not our call. Our call is to be peacemakers. Amen. Amen. Alexia, thanks so much. Um, just really grateful for your willingness to share with us and um, in our community in these days to make some space for that. And I also want to say um, just grateful for your voice and your wisdom over the years, but also in that in that moment in my own life. Um, um, and it's, it's it's gives me hope to know that your voice is in the larger church working alongside what God is calling you to do. So thank you so much for your time today and we're just we're really grateful. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be with you. Part of the church around the world and throughout the ages. Amen. Amen. Amen.